The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm delighted and honored to welcome each of you to today's teleconference to discuss the impact of the Visa Bulletin movement uh, for you, whether you are an employer, an employee, a family member, or somebody just planning to start the green card case. Obviously, a very important consideration whether you're choosing to join a particular job or whether you're an employer hiring a person on an H1L1 or an F1 OPT is the future plans of applying for the green card for those employees. And this obviously is an important factor to attract and retain your best star employees. In the past couple of years, primarily because of COVID, there have been a lot of changes and movements in priority dates both good news and bad news, I guess, whether you're an employer or an employee. For the vast number of green card applicants who are born in India, the green card process is long and frustrating. Because U.S. immigration law limits the number of green employment-based green cards applied applicable for every country, which, as you may all know, is already capped at 7% of the worldwide quota, countries with very large populations who are applying for the U.S. green card like India and China, uh, their employees may need to wait as much as a decade or two to receive the green card approval. Also, as you know, the issuance of green cards is based on the U.S. Department of State Visa Bulletin, which is released monthly. So if you are applying for your permanent residence and you get your priority date, which as many of you know is based on the day either your labor certification is filed or the day your I-140 is petitioned, is filed based on not meeting a labor certification, that then depends, will make a difference on when you can apply for your 485 or obtain your immigrant visa at a consular post abroad. So the visa bulletin issued by the Department of State basically provides the list of the dates. Now we have dates of filing and final action dates, which were changed a few years ago. Uh, people whose priority date is before the dates listed are eligible to receive their permanent residence that month or to file it if you haven't filed your 485. And before I hand it over to Aaron, our incredible managing attorney, let me introduce brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm. Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, who has been with the firm, as I joke around, only 22 years and going. And Kenya Sanders, who's been with us I guess at this point, maybe 10 years, 15 years, we are thrilled because each of the attorneys, I think between the three of us, we have close to a century of immigration knowledge, which tells you how uh, either wise we are or how old we are. <laughs> uh, so with that, uh, let me welcome each of you to talk about the impact of the Visa Bulletin uh, for you all. And Aaron, I invite you to talk a little bit about, uh, to provide a little bit of background for our employers, employees, family members, on what has happened with the priority date movement since about a year, little over about a year ago, October of 2021. Sure. So to start with, if you look at the visa bulletin, you'll see that there's something called the rest of the world, and then you'll see something like India, China, 
and you'll see maybe four or five names of countries that are enumerated that are listed. The reason for this is because every country is given a specific number of visas, roughly 7,500 plus minus per classification. And countries that don't use up their full visa allotment, they're all lumped together as rest of the world, that there's visa numbers that are available for them. But countries that oversubscribe, that use up a lot of visas, especially in the employment-based categories, you're looking primarily at India and China, those countries get their own classification on the visa bulletin chart. And when they get their classification, there's a backlog of visas that are waiting for them, which Sheila had spoke about a little bit earlier. Uh, now, the way that it works is when you come towards the end of the year and you look at the rest of the world and they didn't use up all their visas, so those visa numbers don't get wasted. They get put into the backlog countries like India. And therefore, that's in additional visas that come normally or traditionally throughout every single year. So in fact, you might think you have 7,500, but in fact, there's larger amounts of visas that are coming in. And there's another way that additional visas come in. At, towards the end of every year, if you look at the family-based categories, whatever numbers that have not been used in the family-based categories, those numbers also come to the oversubscribed countries, primarily India and China. I keep mentioning that because they are the biggest, and India, for the most part, is much larger than China. But those numbers are also coming there, and they go through an order of EB1, EB2, EB3, so on and so forth. What happened now is because of the pandemic, that in 2020, when, the, when we came to the end of, of the fiscal year for 2019, which ends on September 30th of 2020, the consulates were all closed. And because the consulates were closed, none of the family-based cases were adjudicated, were processed, or were received green cards. So none of, the, none of the visa numbers were really used. Since none of the visa numbers were really used, they followed the standard protocol of shifting them over to the employment-based category. So now you had all these additional family-based cases from the numbers that weren't used because the consulates were closed, all of those shifted into the employment-based categories. They were such an enormous number that they moved the employment-based categories by years, uh, by several years. And it could be the equivalent of getting an influx of four years of numbers in one shot or five years of numbers in one shot if you look at the ratio of the amount of numbers compared to the normal amount of numbers that came through. So that's why we had these huge numbers that we saw moving. Something else happened that was pretty interesting during this period of time was that you saw, and this is a strange occurrence that happens very rarely. I've only seen it happen once before in my career, and that was with China, where you saw the numbers inverted. So normally EB2 is an advanced degree professional. You think those guys are, there's less there's more of a demand, there's less of those guys around, you think their number would be more current than somebody who was a degreed professional or just a skilled worker. But this time around, the EB3 numbers, the degreed professional and skills workers, those numbers jumped ahead of EB2 by a considerable amount. So we found ourselves in October of 2020 where you had EB3 more current than EB2 and a lot of people were in the EB2 category saying, what should I do? How do I move back to this EB3 category? Is it possible to do something called a downgrade? Thank you so much, Aaron. I think that really set the historical context of what's been happening, as Aaron just explained, in the past year, 
all of the forward movement, the unused family numbers, and now the employment base moved faster. And people, when they say, now can, can will it continue like this for the next year or two? The answer is most likely not, because employment family base is going to continue at consular posts, which for family members, husbands and wives, of citizens or permanent residents who have been separated three, four, five, five, six, six years because of the pandemic, now finally they get to catch up and get some of the visas that were issued. So to connect with what Aaron just said, Kenya, they talked about the downgrade. So what is a downgrade case and how does that work? Okay, yes. So what is a downgrade case? Now, downgrade case is this individual has a perm labor certification that was filed under the EB2 category. That is, you know, it was for a position that required either a master's degree or a bachelor's degree plus five years. So the I-140 was approved under this category. Now the employer files an I-140 petition using that same labor certification, but requesting that the I-140 be approved under the EB3 category, which is the skilled worker category. So you're downgrading it from an EB2 to EB3. Now, as we know that, you know, most of us know that you can port the priority date from, you know, from one I-140 to another. So when you have the EB2 I-140 with the priority date that is current, which is uh, advanced where in under the EB3 category, when the I-140 petition is filed to downgrade it to EB3, then you get a better uh, cutoff date by using the, the previous priority date. So what happens is in cases where the priority date is already current, the downgraded I-140 can be filed concurrently with an adjustment of status application. That gives a um, huge advantage to applicants because spouses can file, spouses can file for EADs. So that's why there was a rush to downgrade their EB2s to EB3s and file their 485 application. Now, having said that, I mean, there is a bit of a risk associated with the downgrade. The greatest risk tends to be that the employer may run into challenges in satisfying the ability to pay requirements. As with any I-140 file for an EB position, the employer must show that they have the ability to pay the salary listed in the PERM labor certification application from the date it was certified up to the date that the I-140 petition is filed. Now, with the downgraded case, the EB3 perm would have been certified several years ago. So when you're filing the EB3 downgrade I-140 petition now, you have to show the ability to pay from the date the, the perm was certified up to now when you're filing the EB3 downgrade. So in this case, even if you had like one bad year financially during all those years, it could result in a denial of the I-140. It also, worst of all, USCIS could go back and issue a NOID on the EB-2 I-140. So that is We see the, that the all the time. We're seeing so many, so many consultations and discussions where, and we had told people when they were doing the EB-3 downgrade, 
that it's not all a bed of roses, that there are always some thorns in the bed of roses. And part of it was this risk that something else that the USCIS would find a problem and the ability to pay has become that thorn for many employers and employees. Go ahead, Kenya. Right. And then what happened was everybody downgraded, you know, a lot of people downgraded to EB3. And then in October, after October 2020, after the downgrading of the EB3 and filing their 485, there was a retrogression on EB3 and the forward movement of EB2 priority dates. This then started another, you know, rush to see applicants then going back to to interfile their original EB2 I-140 approvals to the pending 485 application. So this was called the the interfiling of an EB2 I-140 and and changing the basis of the pending 485 application from EB3 to EB2. And in October of 2020, we see another phenomena where EB2 now retrogressed, and now EB2 and EB3 have almost like pulled parallel to each other. And the saga continues, unfortunately, yeah. Yes, exactly. It's continuing. And so it brings us, I guess, to the connected and related question with all this yo-yo, with all the stuff that's going on, EB2, EB3, panic, employment-based, family-based, the issue that's most commonly asked in an employment-based case is, hey, I would like to interfile. So people say, okay, then what is the interfiling? What does it mean? Another term for interfiling is what we call TUB, transfer of the underlying basis. So to explain it more in greater detail, so last year in 2021, when the final action dates for EB2 finally advanced and obviously took over the EB3 priority dates and EB3 then started to retrogress because so many tens of thousands of people had done the downgrades to EB3, those employees who had obtained the EB2 were able to request the transfer of the underlying basis of their pending I-485 adjustment of status applications back from the EB3 category to the EB2 category, right? But please understand that the USCIS says that you are not allowed to request this interfiling unless your priority date in the EB2 category is current under chart A, which is the chart for the final action dates. Now, some people are saying my company doesn't say that. That is USCIS interpretation. I can do it otherwise. You certainly can do whatever you wish as an employer and employee. But remember, if you're going to do something that violates USCIS, their memos, their policies, the risk is higher that they may push back. Um, though we have seen approvals for people who hadn't even filed an interfiling at all, and their EB2 cases were approved. So we've seen all kinds of craziness, especially as USCIS was trying to use up as many of the unused immigrant visa numbers before September 30th last month um, so that they wouldn't be blamed by Congress, the legislature, for not doing their job. Uh, Something else that we've noticed is those who had previously downgraded their case from EB2 to EB3 were now obviously trying to go back to using the EB2 approval. 
And so USCIS has encouraged these applicants to transfer their underlying basis, as I just explained, to use the glut of the EB2 visas, uh, and they actually created a special filing location for these interfiling of these EB2 cases. Uh, the request has to be made to the USCIS Western Form Center in Montclair, California. So you literally created a new place so it wouldn't get mixed up with other 485 adjustment of status applications. Whether you're an employer or an employee, please understand and remember that when you are interfiling the EB2I-140 with a pending 485 adjustment of status application that, that was filed based on a downgraded EB3 case, the USCIS also requires an I-485 supplement J to be submitted to indicate the continued employment offer the bona fide job offer being available by the employer for that particular position for the employee. So the employer has to confirm the job duties, the minimum requirements, and now show that it's the EB2 job, not the EB3 downgraded job. Only the request to transfer the underlying basis of the pending 485 and the executed supplement J must be sent to the Western Form Center and no other forms or documents because they didn't want to get mixed up with other regular 485 processing cases. And because of this, many Indian nationals were able to actually obtain their I-485 slash green card approvals both last year and this year. But another caveat here, so if the employee has used the AC-21 but moved now to a different employer after 180 days of the 485 pending using the adjustment of status portability provisions under the AC-21 law, then the USCIS position is that if you had used, changed the job and used the EB3 downgrade case, then you cannot just simply interfile to the EB2 because that EB2 was with a prior employer and not with your current slash future employer. So the only way the employee can then interfile the EB2 is if the employee agrees to return back to the original green card sponsoring petitioning employer, file that and then wait an additional 180 days so those who said that's not an option for me, I'm not willing to go back, weren't then able to take advantage of the advancement of the EB2 priority dates in back when this all happened. So there's a lot of yo-yo, a lot of tricks, a lot of nuances, as you can see. So that ties into the next question, Aaron, which I'm going to invite you to speak on. Does the interfiling impact the EAD and AP that's already issued? Because most of these employees have been working on the employment authorization document or traveled on the advanced parole. Yeah, so it, it's interesting because just to take a step back from what Sheila was just saying for a second, I have a very simple way of explaining it and it helps to understand why in fact the EAD and AP will still remain valid after an interfiling. If you consider the job offer or the PERM and the I-140 the heart of the case, and then what you're doing when you're doing a uh, change of underlying basis is you're basically looking at the 45 as the body, as the main part of the case, and the 45 supports the work authorization and the travel document. What you're basically doing is a heart transplant. You're taking the EB3 and you're removing it and you're transplanting and putting in the EB2 I-140 to keep the 45 going. Since it's the same 45 that's going and the 485 is supporting the EAD and AP, nothing really changes for the work authorization or for the travel document. So therefore, the short answer is yes, 
it absolutely does remain valid for you to be able to rely on and to be able to use. Thank you, Aaron. So, Kenny, I'm going to jump because I know individuals, employers, employees, whatever, are always saying, okay, I'm now ready to file. 485 belongs to me. Permit I-140 belongs to the employer. Where do I get started? What documents do I need, et cetera? What's your recommendation? I know we have a list of documents, but we tell people start gathering all of it, especially if it's from countries like India, you know, other parts of the world. It's going to take forever to get sometimes marriage documents, degree certificates, et cetera. So what are the documents and what do they need to start doing, Kenya? Right. Okay. So first of all, the form is the I-485 application for adjustment of status, and then you have the I-765 application for employment authorization, and the I-131, which is for the advanced parole. Then along with that, you need to complete the I-485 supplementary, which is signed by the employer and employee, which is a re confirmation of the um, the employment offer. Then you do need to have the copy of the I-140 approval and copies of documents to show that you have maintained valid immigration, non-immigrant status in the U.S. So it would be Form I-797, granting status in the U.S., extension, change of status, I-20, the AD card. You also need a copy of the I-94 entry record that you can download from the CBP website. This is the I-94 record that is issued to you when you enter the U.S. You need a birth certificate. If your birth was not registered, then you need to obtain a non-availability certificate from the municipality that has jurisdiction over where you were born and any other secondary evidence like affidavits, school records, and so forth. If you're married, you need a marriage certificate, you need children's birth certificate. Um, and if you, you know, unfortunately had any run-ins with the police or had any citations, you know, had to go to court, you also need to get uh, copies of your court record. So in a nutshell, I mean, this is basically what you need to file a 485 application. And if you don't mind, I want to jump in real quick with just a couple of points. Uh, you know, if you're speeding, you know, that makes you American. In other words, uh, it's not something that you have to go track down a, a police record for, and that's listed in the instructions to the 45. Um, and I also want to make a point of noting, you may have birth certificates or marriage certificates or other documents, but there are some nuances to these documents. It's not just if I have it, I can use this as a checklist please make sure that you're very careful if you're relying on this because you could be submitting a document that creates a problem rather than solves a problem. You, you have to make sure, you know, birth, for example, just a simple birth certificate, if it's not registered within 12 months, it's a secondary certificate and it's not going to help you. You're going to need multiple other documents to be able to use it. If somebody was born after 1970 or before 1970, uh, if there's, there's just various things that are nuanced. So these are the general lists. But the nuances, obviously, we can't cover in this teleconference, but I just want people to be aware. So as they say, caveat emptor, buyer beware, just be cautious. It's a, it's a comprehensive list, but not with all the details that come with each piece. That's all. I'm sorry, yeah, Sheila, please continue. Excellent point. And no, no, excellent point. I think it's important. And in fact, I was even going to say, please understand that this 485 list is not because we're discussing 485 adjustment of statutes and related issues. And even in Aaron's example, hey, the speeding citation is okay. Well, maybe, maybe not. If the speeding was because you were under the influence, a DUI or DWI, driving under the influence or driving while intoxicated, depending on state law, 
that could be considered as a criminal issue, which could have implications on your being able to file and get the 485 approval, or if you travel abroad to get the visa stamp at the consulate or the immigrant visa, because you could potentially be inadmissible and believe it or not, being considered as a habitual drunkard, for example. So the, the laws are so complex and nuanced, but the reason that we're mentioning it is to just give you a quick overview because our focus today is really visa bulletin, visa movement, and the 485 part of it is really to tell you that, hey, if you have these, you can get the ball rolling, get your marriage certificates, your birth documents, your degree certificates, all of those affidavits in place prior to your priority date becoming current rather than if you have two weeks or four weeks to file it, don't start searching for it then because getting documents sometimes from other countries like India, um, et cetera, could literally take months upon, if not years, and sometimes you need somebody to go in person to get those documents. So that dive brings us right to the next issue, which is the October 2022 visa bulletin. So as we all know, in the middle of the prior month, the Department of State, the USDOS, releases the visa bulletin for the following month. And so in the middle of September, they released it for October, which is also happens to be the first visa bulletin for the fiscal year 2023. Keep in mind that the USCIS fiscal year starts from October 1st and goes till the next year, September 30th. And it's considered as FY fiscal year 2023. So this year month, which is our October 2022 visa bulletin includes some short term predictions for which I'm going to invite, uh, Aaron actually to come back and discuss, uh, the movement and the final action chart because that's a great consternation and excitement and a little bit of disappointment for a lot of people. Sure. Well, to start with, we, we, when I was speaking before, I was talking about the carryover numbers from family-based to employment-based for the next fiscal year. And I just want to mention there was a significant carryover going into the 2023, starting from October 1st of 2022, um, but it was about 20 to 30% decrease from the years before. So it's going to be a significant change, certainly, but we, are, we definitely would, would see some type of movement. Uh, we see from the family-based categories, they remain pretty much unchanged. They remained actually not pretty much. They did remain unchanged for September of the 2022 to October. But the appointment-placed EB2 visa bulletins uh, we saw for India, we saw a retrogression from December of 2014 to April of 2012 for EB3, that's for EB2. For EB3 final action, they did advance from Feb 15 of 2012 to April 1 of 2012. So it did move forward by a month and a half. Um, as a result right now, as Kanya had alluded to before, EB2 and EB3 final action dates are parallel. They're at the same place. So currently there's no discernible uh, advantage for either category. We're in a wait and see kind of mode. And who knows, it, it might lead to the question, can you, can you interfile after you interfiled? Or can you, we'll have to see, can you change underlying basis after you changed underlying basis? We'll have to see how all those things uh, come and kind of get, come together. Another significant occurrence in September of 2022 was that, you know, there, there's a rule that the government has to use up all the numbers by the end of the fiscal year. And if they don't use it up, it's called a use it or lose it rule. And if they don't use up all the numbers by the end of the fiscal year, they end up losing a lot of numbers. And there's a law that says they're not allowed to lose any numbers. Well, in, at the end of September of 2021, they were not able to use up all the numbers. 
this year they went out of their way. They repurposed people, repurposed officers, did massive training, went from service centers to field offices, internal movement beyond comprehension to make sure that they could use up those extra 240-some thousand visas. And in fact, they did it. But they did it so well that they ended up finishing it before the end of September of 2022. So you had an anomaly in place, whereas they were accepting 45 filings because the visa bulletin chart said it was available. But at the same time, they had no more visa numbers to issue approval. So we were accepting, so the government was accepting file, filings through the end of September 2022 with people with cutoff years of December of 2014, December 1 of 2014. But at the same time, no new adjudications took place, I think, after September 6th, I believe the date was, that no new adjudications took place. Thank you very much, Aaron. I realize that we try to wrap these up in about 30 to 40 minutes. I see we're close to 30 minutes now. So I, would, I know we have a few more topics that we'd like to go. So we'll try to go a little bit faster because I think we were so excited to share every nuance and detail with you to help you truly understand this very complicated task, topic and task at hand. So Kanya, I'm going to ask you to talk about the impact of retrogression on the final action dates because that impacts children and the CISPA, the Child Status Protection Act and all of those issues. So please do go ahead. Okay, so I mean, this is something that we've been hearing a lot from people saying, um, oh no, you know, we filed it on the final action date, but now, you know, visa numbers have retrogressed. My child, you know, my child is like close to aging out. What's going to happen? Now, when the dependent child's 485 application is filed based on the cutoff date in the final action chart, that is the chart A, and that is current, and the child is under 21 at that time, then the child is generally protected from aging out. The child's age is called frozen as of the first day of the month that the final action date became current in the, in the chart A. This is true even if the priority date later retrogresses. So you don't have to worry about it, okay? You file it in the final action date when it was current, child was under 21 on the first day of the month, it retrogressed now, but the child is still eligible under the Child Status Protection Act. The child age on the first day of the month and the file becomes current, frozen on that date, uh, provided that the 485 application has been filed, the, if the dependent child's 485 application is filed based on the cutoff date in the final action chart, which is chart A, if the child's age is under, 20, 20, under 21 on that date of the first day of the month when the final action date became current, then the child is protected. Even if the uh, priority days retrogress, the child continues to be considered to be under 21 until that 485 application is approved. Now, um, this is only available if the 485 application was filed using chart A and not chart B. If you file because you are able to file a 485 application under chart B, which is the filing date, then you do not get that protection. If you file it under chart B, but the chart A subsequently becomes current and the child is still under 21 when chart A becomes current, then the child is then protected. 
Now, if the child is a 21 or slightly over 21 in the final action date becomes current, okay, then you need to calculate using the CSPA calculation whether the child was under 21 on the first day when the final action date became current. For that, you take the date that the I-140 petition was filed, and then you take the date the I-140 petition was approved, and you deduct the number of days in between from the child's age on the first day of the month when final action date becomes current, and if that puts the child's age below 21, then the child is protected uh, by uh, the Child Status Protection Act, and it, it's frozen there until the, um, the 485 is approved. Thank you, Kenya. I know we're running short, so I'm going to try to wrap up uh, a little bit faster because I think that some of these issues about CISPA, the Child Status Protection Act, presumably if you or your employee or your family is connected, I'm hoping you will really understand it or consult with an attorney so, because these have long-standing implications for your children, for your family, etc. So obviously we are trying to give you enough so that you can start appreciating the nuances, but it is a very complicated area, uh, everything dealing with the CISPA-related issues. So the next question that is asked is what happens and this is again becoming very, very common, where the principal beneficiary, the principal employee's 485 adjustment of status application is approved before the retrogression, but then the dependent family members are left out. So we have seen a lot of this happen over the past several months, but particularly last month in September 2022, when immigrant visas became unavailable in the middle of September. So this then resulted in that the fact that the principal applicant became a green card holder with the 485 approval, uh, but the I-485 adjustment of status application for the spouse and the children continued to be remain pending, filed and pending, and therefore they continue to remain in what's called a period of authorized stay of POAS. They're eligible to file for the renewal of the EAD card and the advance parole until their final action date again becomes current in the future, and then only then their 485s can become eligible for approval. But a catch here, of course, is that because the principal has obtained the 485 approval, if they were having a backup secondary under the doctrine of dual intent, the backup secondary status like H4 or L2, etc., they would lose that non-immigrant status, the H4 or L2, uh, because the H1B or L1 holder is now a permanent resident and no longer having the dual benefit of the dual intent status. So then they will need the advanced parole to travel abroad and return without being considered to have abandoned the I-485 adjustment of status application. So I think we just have a last couple of questions remaining. What if I have filed before the retrogression, but my dependent family members are abroad? and they are not able to return prior to retrogression, another common complicated issue. Let's touch upon it briefly. So I, I'm gonna jump in here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and just say one thing and then I'll give a little bit more detail. Um, I don't, like Sheila was saying, when, with respecting the time, but at the same time, 
this is a super complicated situation, and if you have a child that's aging out under CSPA, um, there are some things that you have to consider. When is the numbers retrogressing? Uh, is it still, if they're not traveling, are there alternative things that you can do? I, I cannot emphasize enough that though I'm going to explain to you where you stand, this is one that I would strongly recommend speaking to a knowledgeable immigration practitioner who does this, you know, uh, lives and breathes it so they can go through all the options that are available to you. It is not a simple situation when you find yourself in that situation. But essentially, if your family members are not able to return prior to retrogression, then they can only apply for the 45 application, obviously once they return to the US and once the priority date becomes current again. If the final action date becomes current again after they return, then they can file their 45 applications. If the final, final action dates are still retrogressed, but the filing date becomes current, they can only file the 45 application if the USCIS says that they can use the filing chart to file the 45 application for that month. So again, it's a bit nuancy and you have to kind of you know, really know what you're doing to make sure you get it right. It's important to keep in mind that when family members are outside of the US when the principal beneficiary files the I-45 application, the principal beneficiary still has to maintain his or her non-immigrant status, such as H or L, so that the family members can return as dependent non-immigrant statuses and then subsequently can be eligible to file their 45 application when the dates are current. Okay, thank you, Aaron. And it kind of ties in with the issue that I just mentioned earlier. If in the meanwhile the 485 gets approved for the principal, now they cannot enter the United States at all, period. They cannot enter unless they have their own independent H1 or L1 status and the person was purely a dependent, then they would have to wait abroad the principal would have to file the IA-24 for consular processing, and the family, the spouse and the children could end up being separated for two, three, four, five years until the I-24 is approved, A-24 is approved, and then the immigrant visas are scheduled and the consulates, U.S. consular posts worldwide are terribly backed up with these kinds of cases. Again, extremely complicated questions and issues. Uh, the next question that I have is what happens if the employee is on H-1B or L status and have the pending 485, and now they have to travel abroad. So first I'm going to invite Kenya to start, and then we'll, we'll try to wrap it up. Okay, so those on H-1B and L visa status, they can travel with H and L visas and return to the U.S. with those visas and continue with their 485 application. They don't have to have an advanced parole um, in order to preserve the 485 application. When they are on H and L, 485s are preserved even when they are traveling on H and L visas. And when they return, they can continue working for the H and L employers. This applies to their dependent family members as well. They do not have to have an advanced parole even for dependent families. They utilize their H4s, L2s to travel and that also helps to maintain their non-immigrant status until the 485 is approved. Now, at present, due to difficulty in obtaining visa appointments at consulate, some people are abandoning their H and L and so that they can return to the U.S. in a timely manner and may resort to use the advanced parole to travel. Now, that has some nuances that Erin is going to address. Okay, so pursuant to the, it's not just revised, but including right from the oh, beginning yeah, when the yeah. AC-21 law was passed back in October of 2012, back in October of 2000, 
the USCIS said a person can be on H1L1. That's the whole idea. That's what dual intent means. You can have non-immigrant and immigrant intentions concurrently at the same time. So if a person chooses to re-enter on the advanced parole, the person may continue to work for the H1B or L1 employer as long as the H1 or L1 employment authorization would not have expired had this person not returned under the advanced parole, right? So the, such employment is not considered as being unauthorized, meaning it is authorized employment. So even if the individual does not hold a valid employment authorization document, the person in this situation would actually be, because of the dual intent doctrine, the person would be considered to have a dormant H1 or L1, and then the employer is actually allowed to file the extension of the H or the L for that person, and the person would then be able to use either the H1 or L1 employment authorization to continue working for the H1 or L1 employer, or if the EAD is still valid, they could then, I guess, ping pong and do the little bit of yo-yo. Uh, and I know we have a matter of precaution. I don't know if Adam wants to, Aaron wants to touch upon it or whether we should just run to Kenya with short-term predictions at this point because we're close to 45 minutes at this point. Aaron, do you want to talk for 30 seconds? seconds? Yeah, it's just that, yeah, it's just that it's not a, that this is an INS, it's a legacy INS memo. Uh, it's not a it's not a law. It's not a regulation. It hasn't gone through uh, notice and comment anything like that So therefore because it's kind of weak on the spectrum of of of, um, of directive from USCIS uh, You know you it's a good idea to um, to um, to kind of maintain an EAD uh, Before then or to travel properly on the on the on the H1 when at all possible. That's all Wonderful Thank you, Aaron. And I know that the next question, which is always asked from all of us by our clients, is, okay, you guys have been practicing immigration law 20, 30, 40 years. Tell me what are the predictions. Bring out your crystal ball and tell me. So what are the short-term predictions at this point, Kenya? All right. Okay. So short-term prediction, the October 2022 visa bulletin includes prediction visa availability for the EB2 visa category for Indian nationals for the 2023 fiscal year. Now, according to Visa Bulletin, as a result of the heavy applicant demand during the 2022 fiscal year and the relatively lower number of visas available for the 2023 fiscal year, they had to take action that resulted in the retrogression of the EB2 final action date. The Department of State Visa Bulletin is issued based on the Expected usage of immigrant visa numbers in the various family and employment-based categories. Generally, the immigrant visa numbers move forward at the start of a fiscal year unless the Department of State believes that number of cases at U.S. consular posts worldwide or the I-485 adjustment of status application filed and pending with USCIS will exceed the available immigrant visa numbers for the coming fiscal year. In 2022, that is fiscal year 2022, there were approximately over 280,000 immigrant, EB immigrant visa numbers, which is actually double the regular 140,000 immigrant visa numbers available each fiscal year under the law. On the other hand, for fiscal year 2023, Department of State expects approximately 200,000 immigrant visa numbers. 
So if the visa bulletin did not retrogress, then all EB numbers would be used within a few weeks as a part of the fiscal year. Congress regarding usage of immigrant visa numbers, which has to be spread out over the year, over, the, over that fiscal year. As a result, one can expect that at least in the EB2 category, forward movement of the EB2 final action date would most likely remain stalled for the near future. Thank you, Kenya. So I think we lost a little bit of your voice just in the last sentence or two. So just to kind of make sure that we didn't miss it, I'm just going to point out is that uh, the reason that this fiscal year 2023, we expect approximately 200,000 employment-based immigrant visa numbers instead of 280,000 double like last year. Um, and the reason that we're now, they had to, the Department of State had to retrogress the priority dates in the visa bulletin so that all employment-based numbers would be, would not end up getting used within the first few weeks at the start of the fiscal year which would then violate the mandate of the legislature or Congress regarding usage of immigrant visa numbers during the entire fiscal year. So as you can expect, at least the EB2 category might move forward a little bit with the final action dates, uh, but there's likely to be some stalling because we have to now stretch and spread this because we are used to for the past couple years getting double the number of immigrant visa numbers, which explains the rapid movement of the priority dates. So as you can see, it's a very, very complex topic, the whole thing about visa bulletin movement of priority dates. Many of you as our listeners are familiar with H1 or L1 status, maybe less familiar with the green card permanent residence 485, and even less familiar with the whole priority date movement, Department of State visa bulletin and predictions. However, this is a very important consideration for employers, for employees, and for families to understand these issues so that you can plan to how best to retain your employee, how best they can take care of their family members, their children who are turning 21 years of age, et cetera. Um, I know we could continue the discussion, but because of time, we are being very sensitive. Uh, we appreciate you taking time to join us today on behalf of myself, Sheila Musi, on behalf of our managing attorney, Aaron Finkelstein, on behalf of Kenya Sanders, our senior attorney and attorney coordinator in the non-immigrant visa department, and all of us at the Moosey Law Firm, we thank you for joining us today. We look forward to continuing to help you and your employees and your families as you deal with many of these complicated and complex immigration law issues. And you know that if ever there's a problem, or even if you just want a regular H1, regular case, you can, what do they say, uh, prevention will save a lot more time and money in the long run. And so coming to us will hopefully help save time and energy for you and costs for you as employers and employees. So we look forward to continuing to help you. Have a wonderful fall, and thank you for joining us today. Take care and have a good afternoon. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.